Hello everyone and welcome to episode 34 of Infraction, our true crime podcast. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. And today's episode is a listener suggestion from Hannah in Melbourne. And um, Sal, do you want to explain to the listeners who Hannah is to you? Yeah, so shout out Hannah. Um, Hannah was one of the au pairs I had when I was younger. She was up there with the very top, if not the top. Um, Yeah, and we've remained firm friends ever since. So God, I can't even think how many years that is now, but she's now got little kids of her own. So definitely a very long time. So thank you, Hannah, for being a loyal supporter and also for making this suggestion. I'm very excited to, yeah, to hear a bit more about it. If you're still friends now, that must mean that Hannah was one of the au pairs you were actually nice to. <laughs> yes, that would be correct. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike all the other ones that you terrorised. <laughs> okay, so yeah, thank you so much, Hannah, for this suggestion. Uh, just as a warning, today's episode will talk a lot about sexual assault and rape. So uh, please do listen to this episode at your own discretion. Today's case is set in 2012 in Australia. Gillian, known as Jill, and her brother Michael spent the first few years of their life growing up in Drogheda, in Ireland, with their mother, Edith, and their father, George. Is that Ireland, UK? Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I, that is already confusing because I said that this is set in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> it's because in 1990, when Jill was seven, her parents decided to move their family to Australia for a different lifestyle. And Jill grew up in Australia and attended school and college there. Eleven years later, in 2001, when Jill was 19, she moved back to Ireland for a short while. And this is where she met Tom Marr. Tom and Jill met in November of 2001 and their relationship blossomed from their first encounter. They soon decided that they wanted to build their futures and their careers in Australia and so they moved to Melbourne. By 2012, 29-year-old Jill and her now-husband Tom had moved into an apartment in Brunswick, a suburb of Melbourne, and Jill was successfully moving forward in her career at media production company ABC. Her office was located just a few kilometres away from her apartment. Most Friday evenings, Jill would go out for drinks with her work colleagues, and Friday the 22nd of September 2012 was no different. Jill finished work around 5pm and walked the very short distance to their local bar called Bar Etiquette. Jill and her work colleagues had lots of drinks and were having a really good time, and Jill texted her husband Tom and asked him if he wanted to come down and join them, as they were only a very short walk away from their apartment, but Tom was asleep on the sofa and missed her message. Just after 1am as the bar closed, Jill and her work colleagues started leaving. A few of her colleagues got into taxis, and one of them offered to drop Jill home, but she said no and that it was okay as she literally lived round the corner. Her friends left and Jill started walking home down Sydney Road. When Tom woke up on the sofa, he was confused to see that Jill was still not home. He checked the time and saw that it was 2am. He was certain Jill should have left the bar by now as he knew it closed at 1. Therefore, he grabbed his phone and called her. She didn't answer and so he started sending her a stream of text messages. At 4am, he got dressed and left the flat, walking the streets to try and find her. After two hours of searching for Jill, he decided to call the police and report her missing. God. Whilst the police were trying to track Jill's bank accounts to see if her card had been used, Tom got online and started contacting all of her work friends to see if she was with any of them. This was a thankless task as all her work colleagues were asleep at 6am on the Saturday when Tom was trying to get in contact with them. 
The lack of responses from Jill's colleagues, accompanied with her drunk text from the night before, lulled Tom into a false sense of security that maybe she had just passed out at a friend's house and was just sleeping off a hangover. However, this sense of hope soon turned into fear as Saturday turned into Sunday and Jill had still not come home. Tom had started a Facebook page called Help Us Find Jill Marr and within 24 hours it had accumulated thousands of followers. On Sunday, a full day since Jill had last been seen, a press conference was held. Tom spoke at the press conference and said, I just hope someone saw something or that she'll just walk through the door. To which one particularly uncouth reporter asked him, would you think that could happen? And Tom responded saying that he just had to believe that it would. The homicide team within the police force were notified of Jill's missing person status and by the Monday, the police were working with the theory that she had been murdered. The entire area between the bar and Jill's apartment, including alleyways and car parks, were searched by police, looking to uncover any sign that Jill had been there. In the first instance, their searches yielded nothing. Then, sometime on the Monday morning, Jill's bag with all her belongings in it, including her ID and purse, were found abandoned in an alleyway just off of Sydney Road. This was, of course, incredibly suspicious, considering the police had already searched that area on the Saturday and the Sunday, and Jill's bag had not been there. They were certain that it had been planted by someone sometime late on the Sunday night. What? That's so strange, isn't it? Like... I don't know, you can't picture the conditions in which you were trying to... You would dump it there? Well, you're about to find out. (laughs) Because the police soon learned that this bag had been picked up by a local shop owner. He said that he'd picked up the bag on the Saturday morning when he'd seen it there on his way to work. He didn't tell anyone and he didn't hand the bag into the police. The police undertook their search on Saturday and, of course, they didn't see the bag. Then... On Sunday evening, when the shopkeeper received a call from his daughter mentioning Jill's disappearance, the shopkeeper said that he panicked as he realised that he had some evidence. Instead of reporting this to the police or handing the bag into the police, he instead decided to simply return it to the spot where he'd found it, and so he just dumped the bag back in the alleyway. Right, so basically he didn't want to look guilty by having it in his possession. No, but what this essentially did was just slow down the entire police investigation. Definitely. So, very bad. And also, it's, yeah, it's a slightly suspicious story as well. Yeah, I guess, like, why did he take the bag in the first place if he wasn't going to do anything with it? Yeah. So, this, obviously, like I just said, caused disruption in the police's investigation. If they'd known that Jill's bag had been in that alleyway, they would have searched the area around there a lot more carefully. Worried that by now evidence might have disappeared with the weather, the police brought in a specialist crime scene investigator. He searched the lane where the handbag was found and he moved his searches further to the far end of the alley. In this secluded area at the back of the alley, the crime scene investigator found some unsmoked cigarettes and an ABC pencil. ABC, of course, being the place where Jill worked. There was also an area of turf that had been flattened and where mud had been disturbed. The investigator concluded that this area of flattened turf and mud was likely caused by a sexual assault and he was of the opinion that Jill had been taken down the alleyway and raped. As is the norm with cases of this nature, Tom was the first person the police interviewed. The media really jumped on this and played out the story of Tom killing his wife. When Tom and Jill's home were searched, the media recorded and aired the entire ordeal, making a big point of documenting the endless stream of police officers going in and out of their apartment. Almost instantly, it became clear to the police that Tom had nothing to do with his wife's disappearance. 
They interviewed him at great length, and his story never wavered once. They looked into his phone records, and all his texts and calls that he'd made to Jill's phone were made from their apartment, just as he'd said. CCTV footage showed him walking the streets at the time he said he had been searching for his wife, although the media were less quick to clear him in their court of public opinion. It's just awful, isn't it? Because you, I understand that sometimes, a lot of the time, the media are crucial in getting convictions and their input is needed and, yeah, makes a huge difference. But in a case like this, from, I don't know, almost just the tone of your voice, it sounds like he might not be the guilty party here. And you can't mm, even yeah. imagine the trauma that being, yeah, absolutely in, like, a public court and, yeah, trial by social media, etc., must have caused him. Like, he's a man grieving his wife, at this point almost certain that whatever has happened to her has been beyond reprieve and completely awful. And, yeah, here he is, yeah, having his whole life just streamed out to the public. Like, I can't even begin to think about how much pain he must have been in. It's devastating. It's completely devastating that he had to go through that. And kind of like how I mentioned earlier... You know, he's trying to do these press conferences. He's trying to get the the information out there about Jill and about, about the fact that she's missing. And he's saying things like, when they're like, oh, well, how are you feeling? And he's like, well, I just really want her to come home. I'm just hoping that and praying that she'll walk back through the door. And they're like, oh, well, do you think that's going to happen? That's awful. Like, I can't even imagine how you must feel if, if your loved one had disappeared and that's what reporters are asking you. Like, oh, would you actually think that she's going to walk back through the door? Like, that's... Oh, it's just yeah. People hope that fifty years after someone goes missing, do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. hope is a sumi- a survival mechanism. People yeah. need it, and yeah, whether statistically speaking, it's likely or not, is just yeah, it's irrelevant, really, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, um, on Facebook, the Help Us Find Jill Mar page that Tom had set up on that first day of her disappearance had completely taken off, and within the first four days, it had over ninety thousand followers. The mainstream media also caught on to this and started a frenzy surrounding Jill's disappearance and suspected murder, something that blew up even more when CCTV footage was given to the media by the police. On Tuesday, a member of the public phoned the police to tell them that they thought that the CCTV footage in their boutique shop had caught a video of Jill running and then seconds later a man running after her. The caller said that it looked like Jill was being chased. The police went to the store and picked up the footage and started analysing it. The police said that the footage was taken at approximately 1.10am on September the 26th, 2012. However, the timestamp on the footage says 1.42am. Either way, this is what the footage shows. So the footage is taken from inside the boutique shop. So you can see some clothes inside and then you can see the big windowed storefront and the door. A man in a blue hoodie walks past the shop. Then less than a minute later, he walks back in the opposite direction. Then, about 30 seconds later, what appears to be the same man in a blue hoodie, jeans and white shoes can be seen entering the screen on the right-hand side. He stops just outside the shop window in front of a mannequin and he's talking to someone. You can just about catch a glimpse of a female who is clearly talking back and as she talks, she's moving a bit and so occasionally you catch a glimpse of her when she moves from behind the mannequin that's kind of obstructing the view. They both then start walking, and then the female stops. The man continues for a few paces and then turns around, I presume because he realises that the female has stopped following. She then starts walking again, and so does he, and now she is directly in front of the door, and you can see that she's wearing high heels, I think it looks like she's wearing tights, Uh, she's wearing a dress and a long coat. 
She stops again just in front of the shop door and he's in front of her, maybe a metre or so in front of her, and he is almost completely out of the camera shot. At this point, the woman is still stood directly in the centre of the shot, so there is a little bit of distance between them. It appears that they're still talking, and then it looks like the man walks off. The woman stands there for about seven seconds. She turns her head to look behind her. It looks like she takes out her mobile phone, and then she starts walking in the direction that the man had just gone. Other CCTV footage from other shops along Sydney Road also show a fleeting image of a lady in high heels running and then a man running after her. This man running looks to be wearing the same blue hoodie and white shoes as the man in the previous footage. Friends who had been with Jill that night confirmed that the lady in the CCTV footage was wearing the same outfit as Jill. That footage had been taken on Sydney Road just half a kilometre away from her apartment. The police started searching for footage from other shops on that street, and more importantly, they started trying to track Jill's phone signal. Do you have any questions about the CCTV? Um, No, that all sounds pretty clear to me. Perfect. So, on the Saturday morning... Oh, actually, I do have one question. Yeah? Given that it's not um, super late at this point... That I, I'm obviously you're not from the local areas. It's hard to know, but it seems like strange that there was no one else in the street. Oh, there, okay. So there was. There was, I think, four other people caught on the CCTV footage. So from the moment that this man walks in front um, of that store, and then he walks back, and then he walks back again, and then what we believe and what the police believe is Jill then walking into the scene. There's four other people um, who walk by that shop. And so at the time, they did put out an appeal for these people to come forward as witnesses and they put out an appeal right. for that man as well to come forward as a witness as well to see if they'd seen anything. But as far as I can tell, no one did come forward. Right. Um, so with regards to tracking Jill's phone signal, uh, the police found that on the Saturday morning, her phone was pinging off cell towers in the Brunswick area until about 4 a.m., and then it started moving north, and it appeared to cross right under a toll bridge. This toll bridge took photos of every car that passed under it, and so the officers trawled through the footage from those cameras to see which car went through the bridge at the time her phone pinged off the tower near there. It's not an exact science, and they couldn't marry up the times exactly, but the police managed to narrow down several cars that they thought had driven through the toll at roughly the time her phone pinged in that area. And they quickly discovered that one of those cars was owned by a known sex offender, a man named Adrian Bailey. Reports vary on what happened next. Some say that Adrian Bailey was located quickly by the police, and other reports state that officers had his name but not his location, and that in the background they were trying to locate and track his mobile phone and see if the signals coming from his phone that night matched the same journey Jill's mobile had shown. Either way, after some time, Adrian Bailey was arrested and he was taken into custody for questioning. The police interview lasted 10 hours. Wow, at once? Mm-hmm. Yeah, straight Diamond. through. So, at first, Bailey said that he didn't know anything about Jill's disappearance and that he only knew what he'd seen and heard on the news. He said he had absolutely nothing to do with her disappearance and for hours, he stuck to this story. Meanwhile, police were searching his home and quickly came across some vital evidence. Bailey's girlfriend, who was in the house, told officers that she had found a SIM card in Adrian's pocket when she'd washed his clothes and that she'd tossed it back in the laundry basket. The police recovered the SIM card and found that it did belong to Jill Marr. Back in the police station, Adrian Bailey was still denying any involvement. And then, after about seven hours of questioning, 
he finally broke and admitted that he had something to do with Jill Maher's disappearance. He said that he saw Jill on Sydney Road and that he walked up to her and started talking to her. He said he was trying to be friendly and have a conversation with her. He said that she was not being that responsive as she was on the phone. And in the police interview, he recalled that she'd said she'd been on the phone to her brother. He said that she was polite and spoke back to him. But then he said she got rude and dismissive and this made him very angry. Oh, how dare a completely strange female not entertain a creepy lurking man? (laughs) Yeah, I know. So he said that out of anger, he grabbed her and dragged her down the lane, the same one where her bag had been found. He said that it was there that he raped and murdered Jill Maher. Oh my God, so he killed her there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in his police interview, he said that he strangled Jill to death um, and then he left her body in the alleyway um, and then he travelled home to get a shovel. Um Once basically the police had confirmed where Jill had been raped and murdered, people who lived near the alleyway reported to the police that they had heard a a lady yelling sometime after 1.45am and they said that the yelling lasted less than a couple of minutes. That's what I was going to say, that the reason I was surprised that that was like the site of her death as well as the assault was like, again, it doesn't sound like this was the middle of nowhere. I know it was down an alleyway, but it just seems quite shocking. And I mean, Mm -hmm. I say shocking, but obviously this does happen all too frequently so it isn't like Mm -hmm. impossible but you just think that someone would have heard or seen or like yeah I don't know I think everything just seems to have happened so quickly Mm. so I think the police believed that Adrian Bailey had raped and murdered Jill but I don't think that they believe that he kind of just like lost control and you know was very angry because she was dismissive I think basically based on the CCTV footage you know, it clearly shows that he had walked off and then Jill had waited and then she'd kind of continued her journey as well. So I think they believed that he'd actually hidden and jumped out at her and then chased her a little bit and then dragged her down the alleyway. Um, but I, it seems to, based on the kind of ear witnesses, they have said that the yelling and screaming only lasted a few minutes. And I imagine yeah. if it's sort of a Friday night and there's quite a lot of bars and stuff around, I wonder if maybe they just kind of chalked it up to just like, you know, like people just being drunk. Yeah, that's true. Your mind might not necessarily think, God, I need to go and see what's going on or something. No, exactly. It's like um, that study we did on Kitty Genovese. Do you remember where? Yeah. Like if you, when you're screaming and people don't want to get involved, but if you scream like fire, then they would get involved. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. So after he'd killed her, he left her there in the alleyway and he then drove back to his house to get a shovel. Then he drove back to the alleyway and he put Jill's body in his boot He then drove north of Melbourne to a place called Gisborne, driving through that toll bridge and taking the route Jill's phone signal had showed. And then he pulled off the road at a dirt track and buried Jill in a shallow grave. The police put Bailey into a police car and took his directions on where to drive to find Jill's body. They took lots of wrong turns and went down lots of wrong lanes. And then they came to Black Hill Road. Here, Bailey told the police to stop and he pointed to the side of the road. Jill's body was found buried in a grave that was only 35 centimetres deep. Her clothes had been removed from her waist down. Her autopsy revealed that she had been violently raped before her death and that her cause of death had been strangulation. 41-year-old father of four, Adrian Bailey, was arrested and charged with the murder of Jill Marr. Father of four. Mm-hmm. So I kind of go into a little bit of detail about that later. But yes... The outpouring of love and support from the citizens of Melbourne was immense. The day after the media broke the story on Jill's murder, 
30,000 people marched down Sydney Road, that last road where Jill had been seen alive on CCTV. God, I've got goosebumps. The social media frenzy that had surrounded Jill's disappearance did not end with the news of her murder. If anything, it ramped up even more. There was an insane amount of anger and emotion, and this was something that the police were actually trying to stop. Adrian Bailey was, of course, entitled to a fair trial, and this trial by social media was making the likelihood of an impartial trial incredibly difficult. The police had to put out notice after notice to tell people to stop posting online as they felt it was going to have an incredibly negative outcome at the trial. Whilst the police attempted to control the messages of hate on social media, the mainstream media were busy digging around in Adrian Bailey's past, and what they found was devastating to Tom Marr and Jill's family. As I kind of briefly mentioned earlier, Adrian Bailey's licence plate had flagged on the police's system because he had a criminal history, having served time in prison for violent sexual assaults. When Adrian Bailey had been just 18 years old, he had been arrested and imprisoned for raping and then physically attacking his friend's 17-year-old sister and then attempting to rape another 17-year-old and a 16-year-old. He was convicted and sentenced to five years in prison, but was released after just 22 months. After this release from prison, he married twice and had four children, and seemingly he stayed off the police's radar for about seven years. Then, in the year 2000, he started attacking and raping sex workers. He dragged them into secluded areas, beat them and raped them. There were five known victims who all had incredibly similar descriptions of how they were attacked. Adrian Bailey was questioned and arrested, and he eventually confessed. He said that he found sex workers to be worthless and that he hadn't been getting much sex at home and he'd used that as his reasoning for committing these assaults. Ten other sex workers also identified Adrian Bailey as their attacker, but they refused to give evidence against Bailey as they didn't trust the police enough to keep them safe. For these offences, Adrian Bailey was charged with 16 counts of rape committed against five sex workers. Despite his previous criminal history and the convictions for sexual assault, the court did not sentence him as a serious sex offender, a status of which would have permitted the court to give him a longer sentence. Instead, he was sentenced to 11 years in prison with a minimum term of eight years. That is just ridiculous because if they hadn't have been sex workers, then that outcome would not have been the same. Yeah, I know. I completely agree. And why, based on their job, does that mean that... um, like they're less of a victim is essentially what the kind of courts are saying. I know, there. like consent is consent, whether it's your profession as well. Like it's yeah. just not relevant to the case and it's just mm-hmm. infuriating. Like in the bloody 21st century, why are we, mm-hmm. why do we still have that attitude to it? Yeah, yeah, it's abhorrent, it's awful. Um, so in 2004, three years after this sentencing, a new law introduced the creation of the Sex Offenders Register in Australia Despite the severity of Adrian Bailey's crimes, the police failed to make an application to put his name on the register. This failure to put him on the sex offenders register meant that there was no record of Adrian Bailey being released from prison, which happened in March of 2010. The parole board certified his release after he'd served his minimum eight years and he walked free, without anyone from the parole board notifying his victims or the police that he was once again walking free. A year and a half later, in August 2011, Adrian Bailey broke his parole by beating a man so hard it left him unconscious and with a broken jaw. He was arrested for this attack, but he was not sent back to prison, despite the parole board being notified of this crime. Reporting in the ABC states that the reason the parole board did not send him back to prison for breaking his parole was because this crime was not a sex crime and therefore did not raise alarm bells with them. 
I'm not sure how factually correct this is uh, because it hasn't been reported on that widely. But if that is true, that is absolutely outrageous. Yeah, absolutely. It's a violent crime, as is, you know, a sexual assault. And Mm -hmm. yes, they're not exactly the same, but it still seems to me a fairly strong indicator that Adrian Bailey is by no means a reformed man. Absolutely. And breaking your parole is breaking your parole. You know, we kind of mentioned it in one of our Patreon episodes, but it's like you do anything that is illegal, you should be going back to prison. And it's unbelievable that, yeah, like it wasn't just kind of like that he stole something or did something like that. It was an incredibly violent offence. It left a man unconscious and broke his jaw and they still didn't send him back to prison for the remainder of his sentence. That's absolutely outrageous. Yeah, it's a huge miscarriage of justice. So six months later, in February 2012, Adrian Bailey pled guilty to this assault that I just mentioned. um, And he was sentenced to three measly months in prison, despite this being a clear violation of his parole. Regardless of how menial this sentence was, it doesn't really matter anyway, because he appealed this sentence and he was released on bail. The police did not oppose Bailey's bail and he was allowed to walk free. Five months later, in July 2012, a Dutch backpacker visiting Australia was raped in the same secluded area that Bailey had raped his previous victims. She said that a man pulled over in a car and told her that she was being followed. Panicked, she got into his car. She said the man drove her out to a secluded area and raped her. She said he then cried and apologised, and then he raped her again. She provided details to a sketch artist who drew an image of the suspect. And Sal, let me just quickly send this to you now and you tell me what you think. That's the sketch artist. And I'll send you a photo of Bailey as well. And you just tell me what you what you think, like if you think they look similar. And I know sketches are often very misleading. Yeah, I think it's pretty uncanny. I mean, it's I think hard. it looks exactly like him. Yeah, it's hard to judge because, like, you're going into it with the mindset of they're probably going to look alike. Um, but yeah, I would say that. I mean, you certainly wouldn't be ruling him out as a suspect based on that sketch, would you? No, and if you're looking through the, you know, a list of known sex offenders in the area, and you come across that mugshot of Bailey, and then this sketch, you would be at minimum questioning him, wouldn't you? Oh yeah, for sure. Right. Despite that. Despite the clear similarities in the sketch of her attacker and the fact that the same MO was used, uh, the attack and the rape happened in the same secluded location that Bailey had raped his other victims. Bailey was not arrested or charged or even looked into as a suspect for this crime. And just two months later, in September 2012, Jill Marr was raped and murdered by Adrian Bailey. There are so many failings in this case, and these failings ultimately led to Jill Marr's death. Adrian Bailey shouldn't have been on the streets. He breached his parole. He should have been back in prison on that evening when Jill Maher took that short walk home from the bar to her apartment. But he wasn't. He was a dangerous man, free to roam the streets, to attack innocent women, which is exactly what he did. Yeah, I don't even know what to say. Like, the litany of failings is just huge. Like, this man's got a criminal record record as long as my arm. And not even that. Like, we're not talking about someone here who is a, you know, hugely calculating random attacker. Like you say, he's got an MO as clear as day. He's mm-hmm. stupid enough to operate in very similar areas, going after very similar victims. Yeah, he's clearly a serial rapist. And I just, it's just disgusting that no one ever picked up on it. And I know that, okay, so at one point the sex offenders register didn't exist. But even then, like, what was the strategy? You just put someone away for 
you know, X amount of years and then release them pretending that they don't have like a hugely deviant sexual predatory nature. Like you can't mm-hmm. just pretend that because they've served time, they're at no risk to the public. And what, don't check on them, don't, you know, don't see what they're up to, don't constantly be questioning them. Like I'm not saying... I'm sure there could be someone who has been put on a register and and it's horrendous that they're questioned every single time there's an attack. Well, I'm sorry, but that's how you keep people safe okay. and that's how like justice is carried out. And I just, I can't believe like the more you went on with like the story and his criminal history, it just gets worse and worse, doesn't it? Like any one of those incidents alone, like him not being interviewed with the case of the Dutch packer, Dutch backpacker or mm. you know his him not getting a longer sentence for his assaults on sex workers like any one of those incidents in isolation would be outrageous in combination mm. they just beg belief and in my mind actually warrant some kind of criminal investigation into how that series of failings because as you just said like those failings are directly responsible for Jill's death like someone well, needs exactly. to answer for that I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. And yeah, like you said, what I don't understand the reason behind not putting on the sex offenders register when he had such a clear past history of it, you know, since he was 18 years old. And when he did this to Jill, he was 41. So that's like, what, 20 odd years of sexually assaulting people, raping people, attacking people, beating yeah, how many innocent lives people. Has he ruined? Like, how, yeah, you know, well, exactly. It's not just a victim, it's their families. Like, how mm-hmm. many people that he didn't even attack, like the fear you instill into like yeah. women everywhere people like mm-hmm. him yeah why why wasn't he put on a register why was he just on the streets free to do as he pleased it's just it should never have mm. happened massive police failings huge police failings um so, so was there an internal review tell me there was um yes to some extent yeah with regards to the parole element of it but i can i'll go into that a bit later unfortunately we have not finished with um adrian bailey's long sheet of horrific things that he's done to people with regards to the rape and murder of jill marr adrian bailey having initially pled guilty to raping her but not murdering her changed his plea to guilty for both the rape and murder of her oliver millman's reporting in the guardian states that at the sentencing of adrian bailey judge jeffrey nettle said that bailey's multiple previous attacks on women demanded that he be sent to prison for a lengthy period of time life judge nettle said quote this was a woman who was unknown to you who you dragged off the street as she was going about her peaceful business as a strong man you physically dominated her and subjected her to a savage and degrading rape judge nettle commented that had bailey not pled guilty he would have sentenced him to an entire life term without the possibility of parole instead because he had pled guilty he was sentenced for life for jill mar's murder and sentenced to 15 years for raping her he was also sentenced to an additional three years for violating his parole. Sources vary on what period of time Bailey was given for his non-parole period, so the minimum term that he would have to serve before he was eligible to apply for parole. Uh, but in his closing statement, the judge does make a slight reference to this in that he said, quote, I realise you have reached the halfway mark of your life and given the enormity of this crime and the past offences, the non-parole period is bound to exceed the usual span of a life. Therefore, I do kind of take this to mean that the minimum term was like 35 to 40 years, I'd say. Yeah, which I mean, thank God, because the key thing is that this man can never walk the streets again. Like, it's not mm-hmm. often I say that, but mm-hmm. it, like he can't. Do you know what I mean? Like, he's never going to be reformed. 
Yeah, so one source that I read on News Talk stated that he will not be eligible for, for parole until 2058. And if that's true, that will make him 87 years old. So yeah, hopefully he will never, ever get out. Yeah, I mean, that's got to be at least a start, doesn't it? Because mm-hmm. it's eligible for parole, isn't it? So you just have to hope. To be honest, yeah. like, I don't care, even at 87, I actually think he probably could still pose a risk to the public. So you would Absolutely. just hope that even at 87, um, he'd be denied it. Mm-hmm. So after this sentencing, Tom Marr spoke out and he said that no sentence would ever be enough, but he felt that the 15-year sentencing for rape was too low. The maximum the judge could have given was 25 years and Tom commented that he didn't know why there was a maximum sentence if it wasn't going to be used. He said, who is it for if not for this man? Yeah, I do agree with that actually. Like what does a 25-year sentence rape look like? Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. how there's, it shouldn't... Yes, of course, in like the courts of laws, there should be like a sliding scale and judges' discretion, etc., to an extent. But actually, like a mindless, a savage assault of a stranger is just that. There is no, there is no lesser and more extent of it. Do you know what I mean? I I do agree mm. with his comment. What is the twenty five years for, if not a crime like this? Exactly. So basically, Judge Nettles said that the reasoning for this kind of slightly lower sentencing, um, especially, you know, also given Bailey's history of sexual assault, he said that it was because Bailey had, quote, shown some degree of remorse. And Tom Mark kind of asked, why did that matter? He was like, well, why does it matter if he has a little cry? I don't know what difference that makes to sentencing at all. He said that it's baffling and it's bewildering to sit there and listen to somebody coddle this man with ideas of remorse he said who cares if he's remorseful and I agree who cares if he's remorseful who cares if he was crying and And I just don't believe I I don't believe he is do you know what I mean like the remorse a remorseful man doesn't commit the same atrocious crime again and again and again again. he seeks help and he hands himself into a a police station and says like you know I'm a huge threat to every woman who's mm-hmm. walking freely like in this mm-hmm. city that's a remorseful man if he was crying they were tears for himself like they were tears for his life in prison they weren't tears mm-hmm. for his victims or what he'd done oh a hundred percent and in his one of his police interviews and i think we'll probably talk about this more in our patreon episodes out because i kind of wanted to go through his police transcript but in that he repeatedly says these tears aren't for me these tears are for her do you understand that these tears are for her and i was just reading it thinking like that's rubbish that's not i don't believe you like Mm. you're scared because you've done this awful thing and you know that you're going to be put in prison for the rest of your life yeah So this actually wasn't the end for Adrian Bailey. However, as shortly after he was imprisoned, he was brought back into the courtroom to face more trials for the heinous crimes of his past. One sex worker came forward after his sentencing and accused him of raping her when she had gotten into his car after he'd pulled over. She said that she had just been reading what they called an ugly mug report, which the sex workers circulated to each other to warn them of bad and violent clients to keep each other safe. She remarked to the man in the car... There are a lot of bad guys out here. To which he'd responded, yes, and I'm one of them. She said after that, he raped her and attacked her and then kicked her out of his car. She had reported it to the police at the time, but she didn't know who the man was. Um, That was until she saw Adrian Bailey's face on the news in relation to the rape and murder of Jill Marr. Later that year, another sex worker came forward and accused Bailey of the same thing. She said he took her to a secluded alleyway, punched her and raped her, and as she tried to kick out of the car, she smashed his window. At this point, he said to her, what have you done? I only raped you, clearly showing absolutely zero remorse for his actions, but quite clearly understanding that he was committing a serious crime. 
this sex worker was able to give a bit more evidence that could pin Bailey to this crime as she said that she remembered that he'd had a tribal tattoo on his upper arm and that he'd said that he went to Phoenix Gym. When she'd gone to the police at the time of the crime, which was about April 2012, so five months-ish before Jill had been murdered, she unfortunately was in an incredibly bad place mentally and had turned up to the station drunk and incoherent. Because of this, the police officers hadn't taken her allegations seriously and did not take her statement, and instead they committed her to a rehabilitation facility that also would help her with her mental health. God, it just makes you so angry, doesn't it? Again, if she wasn't a sex worker, I don't think they would have treated her like that. And also, yeah, like, exactly. who cares, like, if she's drunk? Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, fair enough, wait for her to sober up, interview her again, but actually... Does, Take her seriously. Doesn't it, yeah, doesn't it sound kind of feasible that if someone's been through an incredibly traumatic experience, they might be also suffering with, like, substance abuse or mental health? Mm-hmm. Like absolutely and it's it's like you said they didn't take her seriously because she was a sex worker and this was five months before Jill Marr was murdered so again if they'd taken her seriously if they'd done some investigative work they might have found Adrian Bailey and this might never have happened to Jill Mm -hmm. it's just it's just awful Um, so additionally as we heard earlier in July 2012 Adrian Bailey raped and attacked a Dutch backpacker when he lured her into his car She had helped create that sketch of her attacker at the time of the attack, and this was used during her trial against Adrian Bailey. He pled not guilty to all three of these crimes, but he was found guilty of all of them. He was sentenced to 18 years, although after a successful appeal, this was for some reason reduced to 15 years. So with regards to what you asked earlier, Sal, about was there any kind of policy change or anything like that, Uh, In response to this case, Australia went on to change their laws surrounding parole. The government in Victoria requested that former High Court Justice Ian Callanan undertake an independent inquiry into the parole system and the parole board. The overall findings from this review were that the paramount consideration in any decision relating to parole must be made with the protection and safety of the community at the forefront of any decision. He said that the culture of parole in Victoria must and will change. The change to the parole system also introduced a new categorization of offences. These included violent offences and sex offences. Any individual listed within one of these categories will require a greater level of scrutiny from the parole board. Um, Additionally, it appears that previously parole was given at its earliest date where possible, whereas now the laws have changed so that now prisoners must apply for parole um, and they will be assessed by the board um, and they'd have to show that they had earned parole. You just can't believe this was a change that needed to be implemented as opposed to just the way it always was. I know. I know, it does sound bizarre, doesn't it? Mm. That they would just literally be like, oh, your eight years of parole are up. Like, we'll just bring you in, have a quick chat with you and then let you free. Yeah, like, if you're going to do that, just make the sentence that length. Uh, Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Tom Marr has gone on to advocate for women's rights and to speak up about violence committed by men. He has written a number of blogs for the White Ribbon Campaign, which is a global movement of men and boys who are working to end male violence against women and girls. Unfortunately, more recently, in this year, 2020, uh, this case has been back in the news because changes to the laws in the state of Victoria and Australia were proposed, and this new legislation means it will be illegal to identify victims of rape who had been murdered or victims of sexual assault and rape who had taken their own lives. This change in law seems to have stemmed from the legislation that was introduced in February of this year. In February of this year, the Judicial Proceedings Reports Act was amended to prohibit individuals from identifying themselves publicly if their rapists had been found guilty. 
Penalties for breaking this law could result in four months in jail or fines in excess of 3,000 Australian dollars. If survivors want to speak publicly about their personal lived experiences of sexual assault and rape, they must currently seek a court order to permit them to do so, a process that is incredibly expensive. I can't understand the merit, or not the merit, the logic behind this change in law. No, I can't either. And in Victoria, sexual assault survivors launched a campaign against this using the hashtag Let Us Speak. And I feel exactly the same way. I don't know if I'm looking at this wrong, but I agree with you. I can't see any reason for this change in law. And I don't understand how the government thought it would be beneficial to stop people using their own names to speak about rapists who have been convicted. Yeah. Like the courts You're have deemed them guilty. Victims. Yeah, they've been found yeah. guilty. You're silencing victims by removing humans from stories about humans i think Mm -hmm. like you're removing a lot of like the power of them and yeah the change that can come from them like as you say this case being a prime example Mm -hmm. i just don't understand it and there must be some kind of yeah thought process behind it but from the outside looking in it just seems bizarre like these women have been through enough it's their bloody right to talk about it piss off no i completely agree and i can get it if it was like uh, about people who had been who had not been convicted or who had not been found guilty do you know what i mean or if they've been found not guilty i can understand them not being able to speak about yeah them yeah but, sure like right to fair trials etc yeah but this law in- means that victims can't speak about themselves and the attorney general in victoria her name is jill hennessy she tweeted um saying the changes that took effect in february were about reducing barriers and improving clarity for victims who want to talk about their experiences not about introducing new restrictions for survivors who want to go public with their story Uh, but she's also publicly stated that the proposed change in law to stop families talking about their deceased loved one who was a victim to sexual assault would enhance the privacy of deceased victims but this doesn't enhance privacy because in this situation with Jill Marr, this proposed change in law effectively means that she wouldn't be able to be called Jill Marr in anything that her family spoke about her or any, you know, articles they wrote or any conversations they yeah, had about her. Instead, her identity. Yeah, completely, because instead the only reference, they would only be able to reference her as Adrian Bailey's victim, which is disgusting and incredibly regressive. I yeah. just don't understand it. No, nor do I. I feel like, if anything, it's like a violation of free speech. Completely, completely. It's why are you putting a gag order on victims or on families of victims? That's not enhancing their privacy, is it? If they want to speak about themselves, they should be allowed to. Yeah, exactly. Like, their people, their stories, their... Yeah, they're not numbers, and they're sure as shit not. They're attackers' victims. Yeah. Like, just... Yeah, it's got such a, like... I don't know, concept of, like, property around it when you use that kind Mm. of language. I just think it's outrageous. Yeah, like, they're so much more than that. They're more than just that person's victim. Like, they were their own person. Yeah. And they are their own person. Yeah, so it's absolutely outrageous. Um, So that law, the one in, that happened in February, which is essentially putting gag order on victims uh, to speak out, that is implemented. But this new proposed change for families to not be able to talk about their deceased loved ones who are um, or who were victims of sexual assault, that hasn't been implemented yet. And I really hope that it doesn't. Uh, but if I see any more news on it, then I'll, of course, update you guys in a later episode. Yeah. And we'd, I'd be welcome if anyone... Yeah, living in Australia has like a completely different viewpoint on this, then do let us know. Yeah, always open to understanding the other side of it. Yeah, 100%. If we're just looking at this from like the wrong way, um, then we are 100% would love to hear from anyone who maybe has a a different view or who can see it from a a different angle. Yeah, 100%. 
Right, that is all that we have for you today. Do you have anything else to add, Salzo? No, just a... They're all they're all sad, aren't they? But just another really sad case, like just of full of injustices, full, full of, of injustices, and just like a woman out for drinks. Why the hell? Why the hell couldn't she have walked home safely around the corner? It's, yeah, yeah, such a short distance. Yeah, yeah, it's and scary. even if it was an hour, like when when is are we going to be in a bloody world where you can just walk home safely? Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Thank you guys so, so much for listening. Uh, We hope that you have a wonderful week and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye.